Turn with me in your Bibles, however, uh, whatever platform that looks like, to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and, let, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, not more, more, you, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day, its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the uh, statistics are starting to roll in <clears throat> about the toll that the pandemic has taken uh, on us. And we obviously mostly see statistics about how many infections there were, how many deaths have occurred, uh, how many vaccinations have gone out. But one of the things that we don't often take note of is what's happened in this past year uh, in terms of a mental health crisis among our people. Lots of studies that are coming out and showing, at least one that I read, uh, that stress and anxiety are at an all-time high during the time of the pandemic. Somewhere reported 80% of people reported that they experienced heightened levels of anxiety and worry. 50% uh, of people reported that they had what they called depressive thoughts. While even more shocking and more disturbing, some 20% of people expressed that they experienced suicidal thoughts, up from something like 10% from normal levels. Now that's what you call a crisis. <laughs> And to make it all that much more complicated, the quarantine itself made people feel like they didn't have access to the normal things which keep you from going crazy, like other people and like counseling and like therapists and whatever else. This is what we call just a perfect storm for people to experience worry and anxiety and fear in all kinds of new ways. And what began to happen is, is what we know happens. You've heard me say before that one of the things about pain inside your own heart is it's going to come out somewhere. There's no containing that thing. We use terminology uh, of self-medication to talk about the ways we try to sort of ease and deal with pain inside of our lives. So, of course, in this last year, we've seen alcohol abuse uh, 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 skyrocket. We've watched uh, verbal abuse and physical abuse in people's homes go up. 
We've watched pornography usage skyrocket as people tend to attempt to deal with some of this pain. And you add all these up, and it can take a grueling toll on us. Now, why am I going into this? Well, when you roll all these stories together, and I'm sure there's plenty of stories in this room of people who've grappled with it, you might be tempted to think to yourself, look, if there was ever a time in which I am absolutely justified at worrying, it's got to be this last year. Was there any more appropriate time? I mean, if I was ever going to panic, now's the time. And yet, we come to this passage this morning, and in this incredibly minimalistic way, Jesus lays down this simplistic command in verse 26 when he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And there's a part of me that thinks to myself, that almost feels borderline insensitive when you realize how complex what we're going through really is. You might imagine, ladies, that you, uh, uh, that you, you could think about this in terms of your spouse. Let's say, for instance, that you have had an objectively terrible day. But no fear, no worry. You have your attractive and emotionally intelligent husband uh, to sort of uh, pour out your thoughts to. So you sit him down and you carefully unpack all of the ins and outs of your pain and the disappointments of the day. He listens well. He even makes eye contact, of all things. And finally, he patiently, once you get to the end, you think to yourself, I'm already feeling better. But you decide to look at him and you say to him, so, what do you think? To which time he sort of, you know, monumentally helpfully says, well, you know, you just shouldn't feel that way. And on the inside, you think to yourself, that's really helpful. Oh, I shouldn't feel that way. Well, I'll just go flip it off like the light switch that apparently you think it is in my life, right? Do you have friends like this who when all of a sudden you go to them for help, they tend to be so overly unrealistic about your problems that it's almost as like they think it's not that complicated. Back in the 2000s, there was an SNL sketch, Saturday Night Live sketch, that featured the late Bob Newhart. Uh, who was uh, being a psychiatrist in the midst of the sketch. And he comes in, and he's got a patient that comes in who is struggling with anxiety and worries. And Newhart looks at the patient, and he says, look, you have no reason to worry. I can 100% promise that I can help you with this problem. The patient's like, wow, that's fantastic. So, so how are we going to do that? He goes, all right, what was you struggling with? Anxiety, worry? Yeah. Stop it. Just stop doing that. And they're like, yeah, but you don't understand how crippling it is for me. I'm really hurting on the inside. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Stop doing that too. Just stop it. Now, look, we realize that those things are absurd, which is why we laugh. But it wouldn't be funny if we thought that Jesus was treating us the same way, would it? I mean, seriously, is there anything about my faith in Christ that sort of measures for me or helps me understand or have any bearing on my anxiety and my worry that I deal with on a regular basis? Because we've been diving this spring into the study on the, the Sermon on the Mount and the study into Jesus' version of the good life, this way to fulfillment and to blessing and to peace. But in the passage we've got here before us this morning, Jesus is affirming for us that you can have, have no hope for the good life if you're not able to silence that voice inside your head. That's the trick. In other words, that voice that's looking at you and telling you that fear and anxiety is the best play in this last year, we can't experience the good life without silencing that. And he gives us in this passage at least three ways in which we can address that voice inside of our head and maybe try to silence its, its effects. So three things this morning I want you to sort of consider. First of all, that we think financially. Secondly, that we think faithfully. 
And finally, that we think fatherly. Let's look at that first one, that we think financially. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus reasons with us about this command about, stop, about stopping being anxious in a very interesting way. Look at verse 25 again. Look at the birds of the air, he says. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That's the word worth highlighting right there, the word value. Look again in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow and is thrown to the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is appealing to, to this fundamental fact that the reason why we experience anxiety and worry is because anxiety is the discharge of someone who feels devalued, of someone that feels worthless. And so he says, look, just take an example for yourselves. Let's, let's think about the birds. Does anybody really look after the birds? Now, look, I'm sure that somewhere out there, there's an environmental lobby that is deeply concerned about the birds. But for the most part, they pretty much take care of themselves, right? I don't exhaust a bunch of energy thinking about the plight of the birds. And so what Jesus does is he's saying, look, use your imagination to plunge into God's mind about these seemingly insignificant creatures and realize this fact, he's the one who's feeding them. He's the one who's taking care of them without, he stresses, all of the toiling and the gathering and the purchasing and the consuming that you and I worry about every day. And yet God has his mind on them. In other words, God says, I am going to place almost a financial worth on the birds by feeding them without any, without any effort on their part. Then he starts talking about flowers, right? Birds are one thing, but what about flowers? Jesus is saying to us, when was the last time that you got lost in the beauty of a flower? Where you notice the, the delicate nature of it, the, the intricacies of the colors as they're spread out there. And Jesus is saying, hey, guess where that flower got its beauty? That's my father's idea. And what's funny about that is that's just a flower, do you realize what God intends to do with you and for you when he clothes you in inexpressible beauty in the other life? In other words, how much more is he going to clothe you? That's just an insignificant flower, one step away from a weed. But what about us? What will he do with us? And then he, see, then he gets the connection. He says, are you not of more value than they? That word value is a financial word. So what Jesus is doing is encouraging us to put a spiritual price tag on the things around us. Give it a value and then multiply that figure times a zillion and you'll know how he feels about you. That's his remedy here. There was a pastor friend of mine who uh, was uh, living in New York at the time and he had to get into a taxi cab and he was late for some place. Now, getting in a taxi cab in New York is its own, is its own adventure for those of you who've ever visited the city. Uh, those guys weave in and out of traffic with an amazing uh, um, skill, maybe not be the right word, but at least like there's no tomorrow, right? And at one point during the drive, the worst thing happened. The taxi driver took a sharp turn and slammed into the back of the taxi in front of him and dented up both of their bumpers. Well, my friend thought to himself, oh, great. I'm going to be here all day. You know, and he thought to himself, he's going to be doing all the stuff that it takes there. We've got, we got to get out of the car. We've got to exchange insurance information. We've got to call the police. You know, it's just going to be a whole thing. 
But instead, the taxi driver just sort of, well, the first thing he did was he made a rude gesture uh, at the other taxi driver and then sped off around the corner. Why? What the pastor began to wrestle with was, is he was like, this New York City cabbie, for whatever reason, has not placed the same value on a wreck that I did. Why? Because there's other values. There's something more higher, there's a higher priority, priority for me that I've got to get to. And what Jesus is saying is, I really want my people to become like New York City cabbies. This may be the first time that illustration is ever used in that regard, by the way. Why would we want to do that? Simply because a cabbie so values his next fare that it neutralized his time to worry about his little fender bender. Does that make sense? He doesn't worry. In other words, the wreck was barely a blip on his screen because the next fare is what he treasures the most. His value is elsewhere. In other words, your anxiety and your worry is deeply connected to your assessment of the value of the object that you're worried about. And so Jesus, Jesus becomes this brilliant counselor therapist here because he's saying, what I want you to do is I want you to assess your value over these things that quite honestly, you've just overvalued in life. I love this. Jesus doesn't shame us for the fact of our worry. Instead, what he does is he argues at the very thing that is propelling your worry underneath the surface. He looks and says, the problem is you have overvalued. You've put too high a price tag on that business deal that is keeping you up for the last week. Your price tag that you have on that friendship is too high. That, that, that economic forecast that who knows who told you or whether they know what they're talking about that they gave to you, that you've overvalued it. Your marriage, the pandemic, your children, all of those things, your price tag is too high. But instead of Jesus coming along and diminishing those things, he emphasizes your worth relative to those things. You see the genius there? He says, think about the beauty that's in store for you when my father clothes you. Think about your value that's so much more than a bird. I find that a brilliant counseling move on Jesus' part. So here's a question before we move on to the next point. When, you, when your thoughts turn to God... Do you have a sense of his value of you? Because if we don't, we haven't come anywhere close to what Jesus' vision is in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the price tag that he places on you? See, when I was growing up, I would sit in, in sermons, much like you do here, and I felt like the, the, the consistent message was, well, now, have you put a high price tag, price tag on God? It was always about how much are you valuing him? But here's the, here's the catch. You'll never value him until you understand his value of you. That's fundamental. And as it turns out, helps those who are crippled by worry. That's what I mean when Jesus wants us to think financially. But secondly, he wants us to think faithfully. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he looks there in verse 30 and says, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You've heard me say this before, but in my years on college campuses, <clears throat> I found that one of the number one topics of misunderstanding among young Christian people was the topic of faith. What is it? What is its nature? And for most of the students that I spoke to, and I'm talking about people that grew up in religious context, just like this church, faith was sort of like a, 
a positive mental state that was marked by the absence of doubt. In other words, I know that I'm being faithful when I don't allow any thought of doubt ever to enter my mind. Got to stay positive. And honestly, people can be excused for thinking this way because this is the way the culture defines what, believe, what faith and believing is. You know, we're coming up on the College World Series here, and I don't have any idea who's going to win or perform how they will. But I feel confident there's going to be at least one team that kind of moves through the brackets uh, in a way in which they weren't supposed to. And we're all going to get very excited about it. They're going to come to an end of a big game that they're going to win. And after they win, some commentator is going to walk up to one of the players and say, wow, how did you do it? And stick a microphone in the guy's face. And what he's going to say is going to be something like this. Well, you know, from the very beginning, we never stopped believing that we could do it. In other words, that's what put them through. It was our belief. We think that faith is trying to work up enough positive energy on the inside so that I don't even entertain the thought that we might fail. You know what I really wish? This is an aside. I wish that the, comment, that, that the, that the news reporter would then go into the losing team's locker room <laughs> and talk to the coach there and be like, Coach, what in the world happened? And I wish so much that he would say something like this. He goes, well, you know, honestly, we don't know what happened. From the very beginning, we believed that we were going to be, you know, be the winners. We knew we were going to win. So what we're about to do is we're going to spend the next few hours going around and figuring out who it was that didn't believe. Who was the weakest link? Because clearly it was their fault that we lost. I mean, that's the thinking, right? Yeah, look, I'm being silly for a reason. But it, it's not silly when all of a sudden the stakes are higher, is it? A number of years ago, I watched a, uh, a news show about a couple, a Christian couple in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, who had, had struggled getting pregnant and they used IVF techniques to sort of achieve a pregnancy, only to find that they had seven healthy embryos that had implanted in the woman's uh, body. Well, the doctors began to beg the lady to abort at least half of those uh, embryos in order to give the other embryos a healthy chance to live, but they refused to do it. And the quote went like this. They said, we believe that God creates life and we don't have the right to abort any of them. Amazing stand. Even more amazing than that, they had all seven children. All of them were healthy and all of them survived. They became known very famously as the, the McCoy septuplets. But this was a very interesting news item piece because there was a, the news guy had contrasted that story with another family that would live just in the, next, in the nearby state. And that particular family had the exact same circumstance. They had gone through IVF uh, 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 treatments, and there, there were three healthy embryos that had implanted in her body. And she was encouraged to abort at least two of them to give the other one a chance to live. And she refused on the exact same moral grounds. Instead, the result was all three children were severely disfigured with a host of medical issues that they would never recover from. And they showed scenes of the children struggling in the midst of the news reporter. But the interviewer, I remember, interviewed this lady, and it was not funny at all. Because she, was looking, she looked at the camera and she was like, why did God not give this to me? I prayed. I believed just like they did. Why did he hand me this? Now, I don't know how you answer that, but what's the problem? I think the problem is a misunderstanding of faith. Faith is not something that wells up inside of you so that you magically leverage God to give you the life that you want. That's not faith. 
What I've tried to say over time, though, is, is that faith is rather this mechanism inside the human soul that looks out of itself to get meaning from something in life. You have, as we have said over and over again, a motivational center that the Bible calls the heart. And that heart is the center for everything that you do. Your, your thinking comes from your heart. Your feeling comes from your heart. Your choosing comes from your heart. For that reason, faith is so much more about its object than it is even its substance. You don't measure the quality of your faith by some arbitrary standard of how positive you feel about it. No, faith is measured by what you are looking at. And so therefore, this heart is always searching from the very beginning of life for real life, for fulfilled life, for satisfied life. But the problem is, is that we're sinners. And what that means is, is from the, from the crib, we're okay hearing anything that we would lock our life on except for God. Because otherwise, I'm not in control of my life. The Bible refers to these things that we lock on to as idols. Number one sin in the Bible. And here's Jesus' critique of those idols. He goes, look, the problem with those idols is they're so small. They're too small. This is what Jesus is saying when he accuses his followers, oh, you have little faith. He's not talking about quantity. Oh, if you just purged out that last little thought of doubt, you'd be great. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, you're worried about your life because you've directed your faith on something so small. It's a little thing that you've placed your heart's confidence in. But if your faith was directed at me, then you would see that only I am big enough to push out the worry from the rest of your allegiances in your life. Look, when God is the thing that I trust the most, I'm invulnerable. Nothing can touch me because all other loves are anchored by his love. Look, when I was in college, I was in a relationship, and I think I loved this young lady, but I know that I love this young lady. It's not my wife. I know I love this young lady more than I loved God. And because I loved her more than God, I destroyed that love. Now, mind you, I liked God. I had positive associations with God. But I rested my motivational center on the relationship. Does that make sense? So that when it fell apart, I fell apart. It's okay to be disappointed when life doesn't turn out the way in which we hoped that it would. But I was devastated by life not turning out the way in which I wanted it. Do you see the difference? One has God at the center, the other one does not. So Jesus wants us to think financially about our worth. He wants us to think faithfully about what our faith is, uh, is centered on. But then thirdly, he wants us to think fatherly. What do I mean by that? Well, did you notice that throughout these verses, Jesus twice, again, refers to God as his father. And look, we started talking about this a couple weeks ago, and I told you I'd return to it, and here we are. It was not common for Jewish leaders of that day to refer to God as their father. It was way too sacrilegious to do something so personal and familiar. But throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, you keep getting Jesus encouraging his followers to associate their fondness for good human fathers with the love that their Father in heaven has for them. He wants us to make that association. Again, I only read a, little bit, a line or two of it from last time, but I got a little more time to unpack the J.I. Packer quote from Knowing God. When he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out, how much he makes of, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers, even his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, he says, is the Christian name for God. Man, that's a searching quote. But look, make the connection with our worry. Jesus is assuming that one of the best remedies to our worry and our anxiety is to learn to think of God as if he is a good daddy. So often we spend our time with anything but that view of him. The inertia of our heart sort of leads us, instead of thinking like we're God's child, we think actually that, that, that we are a slave in his household. It's an interesting thought experiment to realize that if you were to go into an average ancient Near Eastern Roman home and looked around at the people inside the house, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between the children of the master of the house versus the children of the slaves. They would have looked exactly the same had you seen them from the outside looking in. But when you spoke to them, you would suddenly find a little bit of a different outlook, would you not? Because the children of the master of the house would have an unusual sense of security. They knew they were safe. They had an unusual sense of, of intimacy. They had access to their father that the slave children would never think to have. They had, a, they had a sense of assurance about their life that they knew when it came down to it that I was in my father's hands and he would take care of me. Which finally led them to an entirely different outlook because they knew that they had an inheritance that was coming. And that inheritance would, would keep me preserved throughout the rest of my lifetime. Do you see the difference? <laughs> Look, Jesus is coming along and saying, what is your default mode for thinking about God? And do you feel the inertia pulling us to think of him as if he is a slave master rather than a good daddy? We're all tempted by that. British sprinter Derek Redman was one of the fastest men on the planet leading up into the 1992 uh, Summer Olympics in Barcelona. He'd actually already won the 400-meter uh, relay in the World Championships the year before, and it looked like he was cruising on to victory after he won the, um, the quarterfinals and he got started off well in the semifinals. When all of a sudden it happened, his hamstring snapped and he collapsed to the ground. He would go on later to say that he thought that he had been shot in the back of the leg after he laid on the ground. Well, as he's writhing there on the ground in pain, the men sort of come off, the medical personnel come off the, onto the track and attempt to sort of bring out a stretcher and get him on, but he waves him away. Take him off. He hobbles back up onto his feet or his foot and he starts to hop on one foot toward the finish line. Well, what you barely notice until it actually becomes obvious is a rather portly man sort of muscles his way through the crowd surrounding the track. He pushes past security and grabs Redman by the arm and starts to walk him towards the finish line. Turns out it was Redman's father. And here's the thing. You don't have a soul if, you do, if that doesn't bring you to some measure of tears when you watch it. If you're wondering this morning whether you have a soul, you can go on YouTube and watch Derek Redmond's finish of, the, of that, uh, that race and see what happens. But here's my point. How rarely we think of God in that, with, that among, among, with that kind of affection. We cower in our prayers like we have no right to be there. 
which is kind of a subtle way to put it, isn't it? Because technically we really don't have a right to be there. But see, Jesus is preaching to his people about the fatherhood of God because he knows what he's about to do. He knows that on the cross, what he will win is absolutely our right to be there. And because he has won that legally and performed our adoption in that regard, he now can shed abroad for us the love that he has for even his own son. And we're the recipients of that too. You can't not quote Romans 8, 16 and 17 on this one. It says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That's that stuff that happens in the imagination like we've been talking about. That we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus wants his people to live the good life, but he knows that's not going to happen until we silence that voice in our head. In my family, we call it the shame voice. (laughs) It's the voice that's coming in saying, you are worthless. It's the voice that comes in and says, man, look look at that little shiny thing over there. Wouldn't it be better to give my life to that? And it's the voice that looks and says, you're a slave. You're a slave to yourself. You're a slave to your passions. How dare you speak to God with that kind of familiarity? That's the voice. That's the ground of worry. That's the ground of fear. It's the ground of anxiety. And so Jesus is coming and saying, look, would you just spend some time asking some questions? Number one, do you know how valued you are? Do you see what the cross says about your value, your intrinsic value to my Father? Do do you know how big he is? Because once I am set in the center of your imagination and your worship and your allegiance, it forces out anything else that might be a distraction. And then finally, do you know how much your daddy loves you? Do you have any idea the care that he has, the, the concern that he has, the watchfulness that he has over every single step? Your father is there watching over you. I think Jesus' intention here is to say, look, take that in. Take that in. Let that settle in and let that start to erode your worry. Wouldn't that be a good week if we reminded ourselves of that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit, you would testify to our spirit as well. That we are your children. Father, that you are great. Father, that you are, are, are worthy of our faith. And that, Father, you have valued us immeasurably. Those are, not, those are not easy things for us to believe because, Father, the voice for many of us in this room is so loud that it's deafened out any opportunities for us to hear our, our, our scripture readings today, for us to hear the, the, the lyrics to our songs, for us, Father, even to hear the word tell us that you care about us in that way. And so we need your spirit to move among us even this morning and give us a sense of what it might take to, to walk away from worry. Could you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.